0: Philippians 2, verses 14-16. through Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor, in vain. Let's pray. Father, as your word now commands us to uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so we uh, commit ourselves afresh to you. We remind ourselves that you are the sovereign God, that you hold our lives in your hand, that you hold all our circumstances in your in Your hand. And I pray that uh, as we consider this Your Word, that Your Spirit would be at work in us. Give us that contentment. Give us that faith. Give us Your Spirit in order that uh, we might not grumble with, uh, about You and Your circumstances, or dispute with each other. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I bet your experience is like mine when I start reading the Old Testament. While I'm reading the book of Exodus, I get so excited that God um, is leading Israel out of Egypt. And I imagine what what it must have been like to see God perform the ten plagues to see God destroy uh, the Egyptians who were holding them in slavery. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were an Israelite living during that time? If uh, you were being let free after 400 years of slavery for your people, and then you're going out of Egypt and you're being led by a pillar of cloud which actually is the glory of the Lord by, by day, and at night you're being led by a pillar of fire. When I read about these things in the book of Exodus, I always find myself thinking if I were there experiencing those things, seeing those things, my faith would be unshakable and I would be so eager to obey God. But what do the Israelites do when they leave Egypt? They grumble, they complain, they dispute with God, they dispute with Moses, they dispute with each other, and they do it incessantly. They grumble about what God is doing. They grumble about their circumstances. Even before they crossed the Red Sea, they were grumbling against God. Listen to Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. In Exodus 14. They said no, or I'm sorry, they said to Moses, "Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us uh, out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And they are saying this even before they crossed the Red Sea. And then three days after they crossed the Red Sea, and you know how they crossed the Red Sea. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground because God opened up the Red Sea. Well, only three days after that, in Exodus 15, verses 23 and 24, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And so the water became sweet. They had something to drink, and then they went and they camped at this little oasis uh, named Elam. They were there for about two months, and then after that, they set out again. And after they set out, guess what they start doing? They start grumbling and disputing uh, with God and with Moses. So it says in in, uh, verse 16, they set out from uh, Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to our full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." So they are grumbling, disputing with God, disputing with Moses as God's representative. And the reason why I mention this is the Apostle Paul in our passage here in Philippians is drawing a deliberate contrast between um, the Philippian Christians and what God has called them to and what the Israelites were. So, uh, let's look at the passage again in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Paul says in verse 14, "...do all things without grumbling or disputing. Instead of grumbling and disputing, they are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish." in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, he uses this phrase, uh, a crooked and twisted generation. Why would he use that phrase? Is he just picking it out of the air? Actually, he's not just picking it out of the air. Rather, guess what Moses called the Israelites while they were out in the wilderness? In Exodus, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses called the people of Israel a crooked and twisted generation because of their constant grumbling and disputing. And so, Paul is saying, don't be like the Israelites. They were a crooked and twisted generation. You are to be different. The world in which you're living is crooked and twisted. You are to be different from them. And so that's why he says in verse 15 uh, that you are to, you, although you live in a crooked and twisted generation, you are not to be like that. And I think the implication is when you grumble against your circumstances or when you dispute with one another, God says that you are acting in a crooked and twisted manner. In each instance that I quoted from Exodus, the Israelites had very rational reasons uh, for being concerned about their circumstances. Before the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, the reason why they were grumbling was they could see the Egyptian army off in the distance, and the Egyptian army was heading right, right for them. And they couldn't flee because they had the, the uh, Red Sea to their back. Plus, they were a million people. How are they going to, um, well, over a million people, actually, how are they going to flee from the Egyptian army that uh, was pursuing them in chariots? And then, after they crossed the Red Sea, three days, after, three days after they crossed the Red Sea, again, this is over a million people. And they had been without fresh water for three days. I'm certain they had supplies of water. But those, those supplies were surely running low. And so they were out in the wilderness for three days. They come to a place where there's water. The water is bitter. What would you do if you were a parent and you wanted to make sure your children had water? It would have been very tempting to grumble and complain against your circumstances. And then after two months of being in the wilderness, Food was becoming a bit scarce. But here's the thing. God put the Israelites in those precarious circumstances. He wanted to see if they would trust Him. And remember, while they were out with the Egyptians bearing down on them, when they were out and they had been without fresh water supplies for for three days, and they come to a spot with water and the water's bitter, or when they're out in the wilderness and they're not having um, as much food as they would like to have. Remember, every moment of every day, God was with them. And He made His presence um, visually apparent to them. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and they could see that God... Was with them. And so God is testing them to see if they will trust in Him, and they refused to trust in God. God is always with His people. He has promised to never leave or forsake His people. No matter how painful, no matter how scary, no matter how sad your circumstances, God is with you. He was with you when you entered into those circumstances, whatever those circumstances might be. He will be with you through the circumstances and He will help you to endure them. He has promised to do that. How do I know? Because He has you and your circumstances within the palm of His hand. And He has promised to work all things together for your good and for His glory. This means that grumbling about your circumstances is really grumbling against God. Grumbling by God's children is always out of place. So I've got to ask you, do you believe that God is indeed with you? That He will never leave you or forsake you? that He has you and all your circumstances squarely in His hand, that He is all-powerful. So the question is, will you trust Him or will you grumble? Will you act in a twisted and crooked manner or will you show yourself to be a blameless and innocent child of God? Now, I'm sure you know, that our that our culture is famous for complaining for grumbling for being generally discontent you know i find it to be quite curious that the most influent, or the most influent, the most affluent the most indulged society on the face of the earth is really also the most discontent society on the face of the earth the more we have, the more discontent we seem to be. And being so condi- being so discontent, we tend to complain a lot. And since this is an election year, we have all the politicians doing everything they can to tell us all the reasons why we should be discontent. But this is good news for Christians. It's good news because the more discontented people are, the more you will stand out when you are contented, when you are joyful, when you are optimistic because you know that your God loves you and your God has promised to work all things together for your good, that your God is faithful every day, every moment of every day. When you are able to hold your tongue when you are facing difficult circumstances, when you are able to trust entrust your life to God, when you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring because today is so difficult, it speaks volumes to all the discontented people around you. You won't even need to be vocal about your faith and you will still have a powerful witness. Of course, I always encourage people. I always encourage Christians to be vocal about their faith. The Apostle Peter encourages God's people to be vocal about their faith. Always have an answer. But the opposite is also true. If you are a nervous Nellie or a grumbling Bob, then it will blunt your verbal witness because people will not only be hearing your words, they'll be looking at your life and that's what that's what Paul is saying here in verse 15. If you entrust your circumstances to God, if you refrain from grumbling and disputing in a culture where everyone is worrying, everyone is fearful, everyone is self-centered, looking only out for number one, then you will shine like lights in the world against the backdrop of a crooked and twisted culture. You will shine like a full moon against the backdrop of a me-first society. I want you to look carefully at verse 15. Paul is saying something profound here that I don't want you to miss. He says, um, verse 14, "...do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world." He's saying something here that's not immediately evident. You've got to remember what he said earlier in chapter 2 to understand what he's saying. And you should know by now what he's saying, what he said earlier in chapter 2 because I've been preaching for several weeks now just to get us to verse 14. And every sermon in chapter 2, we have ended up on the theme of love. We have ended up on the theme of self-giving love. That's Paul's theme here in verses 1-16. through And I believe Paul is, is underscoring this self-giving love and he's drawing from the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul uses these words in verse 15, these words that really struck me. This word blameless. This word innocent. This word without blemish. What Paul's talking about here is he's talking about perfection. And it went through my mind, where where does where does the Bible talk about perfection? Well, it talks about it in several places, but my mind went to Matthew chapter five, verse forty eight. In Matthew five, verses forty three through forty eight, Jesus is talking about the nature of Christian love. Jesus says, If you love your enemies, you will be demonstrating that you are sons of God just like Paul's saying here in our passage. Jesus also says your love will distinguish you from the rest of the people in the world, just like Paul is saying here in our passage. Furthermore, Jesus says when you love your enemies, your love will be perfect, just like God. And Jesus uses this word perfect. Paul uses this word uh, blameless, innocent. Without blemish. And I believe this is why Paul is is, uh, using words like blameless and innocent and without blemish. Because he's drawing on Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Paul is not simply calling you to avoid grumbling and disputing. He is calling you to love like God loves. And so listen... To Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect. And he's talking about the manner of your love. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me illustrate what I believe Paul is saying here. And I'm going to illustrate it by asking this question. When is a thief no longer a thief? Is it when he stops stealing things? Well, let's say you lock up the thief in in a cell. You bolt down everything. You take away anything that he could possibly steal. It is now impossible for him to steal anything. Is he still a thief? Absolutely. He will be a thief until he becomes a generous person. You see that? He needs to be changed inwardly. His desires need to change. He will be a thief until the moment that he becomes a generous person. Similarly, self-centered people will be self-centered until they become loving people. In fact, a person who loves their enemies from their heart because they love God, it will be difficult for a person who loves like that for them to grumble, just as it would be almost impossible for a generous person to steal, because it's not going to be their desire. I'm going to show you what a loving person's life will look like. Look back in Philippians uh, chapter two, verses three and four. You will recognize this verse. we spent uh, we spent a lot of time with it. The Apostle Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what a loving person is going to look like. Their, their interests are going to become secondary to the interests of others. Their um their desires are not going to be selfish. Rather, they're going to be outward. They're going to be um, focused on other people and even treating other people as more significant than themselves. In other words, what Paul is saying is don't be self-centered. Be loving. Well, oh, and what happens when you're a loving person, when you learn to love your enemies, when you learn to die to yourself to put others' interests ahead of your own, what will your life look like? Well, your life will shine. It will shine like, as I've already said, a full moon on a dark night, giving light, everyone else. You can't help but notice the moon when it's shining like that. And as I've already said in the prayer uh, earlier today, you don't have that kind of light in yourself. You don't have that ability to love other people in and of yourself. But remember what Moses said what happened to Moses when he would go into the presence of God. He would go into the tent of meeting. He would come out and his face would shine. It would be so radiant that the people were scared of him. And after a while, uh, his, it, his uh, radiance would begin to dim. The secret to you loving as God loves, the secret to you shining, it's just like Moses, spending time in the presence of God. And that's what he says here in, in um, verse 16. He says, in verse 15, "...among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the Word of life." The secret to shining is spending time with God. In other words, holding fast to the Word of life. Spending time in God's Word, listening to Him talk to you from His Word, and then you talking to Him in prayer about what He's saying to you in His Word. In other words, staying close to Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, the Lord Jesus talked about staying close to Himself about the disciples, He he instructed them, stay close to Me. Abide in Me. Abide in Me as the branch abides in the vine. And what happens when the branch abides in the vine? The branch is fruitful. He said in John 15, verse 5, Without Me you can do nothing. Make no mistake. And in and of yourselves you can't shine. In and of yourselves you can't love. In and of yourselves, you can't obey God as God calls you to obey Him. He's not calling you to some surfacing kind of obedience. He's calling you to uh, obedience that is that begins in the heart, that is rooted in the heart, that, um, that reflects His Word. And you can only do that by remaining in Him. So I want to encourage you this morning as God's people who are called to shine, stay close to Jesus. And if you're a stranger to this kind of love, if you're saying the world would be a whole lot better place if people really did love like that, and I don't even know how to do it, I want to encourage you to receive that love. This love was modeled most closely, or most brilliantly, most gloriously by our Lord Jesus Christ. He came here and took on human flesh in order that he could die for human beings. He put all his self interest aside. He did not even try to hold on to his glory and his authority in order that he could humble Himself, submit to that awful cross, and die for sinners. He didn't simply just model that love. That was His love that He is giving to sinners. Receive that love by receiving Jesus Christ. And the funny thing is, when you receive Him, you're connected to Him. In other words, you begin to abide in Him. And then you start becoming fruitful. And then you start loving in a way that is strange to most people. Loving even my enemies? Receive Him. Whether you are a believer or unbeliever, whether you have been a believer for decades, receive Him. Rest upon Him. Flee to Him. And You will shine like stars out in the universe. You will shine like like lights against the the black um, backdrop of this crooked and, and twisted generation in which we live. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every person here as we have uh, narrowed the focus of this message down to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God, I pray, it is my lo- the longing of my heart that every person here receive and rest upon Him alone. Receive and rest upon His love that He poured out in submitting to that awful cross and then gloriously rising from the dead for our justification. God, I pray that there wouldn't be none here who leave this morning without glorious thoughts of Jesus Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.